Welcome to the Real View podcast, where Ohio realtors connect you to innovators and influencers, keeping you with the real view of real estate. Whether you're a broker, agent, first time home buyer, industry leader, or just happen to stumble upon our podcast today, you can expect to hear tips, tools, tricks, interesting information, and so much more from the experts in Ohio's real estate game. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Real View podcast. I'm your host, Allison Wiley. Welcome to today's episode. We're super excited. It is Fair Housing Month in this month of April. And who better to have on than Nate Johnson? Nate, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you're all doing well. Yeah, we're super excited to have him on. He is a realtor in the St. Louis, Missouri area. He's a certified NAR instructor. He was president of Missouri Realtors in 2018 and president of the St. Louis Realtors in 2011. Great guy, um, goes all over the U.S. uh, giving amazing presentations on fair housing as well as smart growth. So as I said, Nate, we're super excited to have you onto the show. Welcome. Today's episode is going to be all about fair housing. It is fair housing month in April. That's kind of the celebratory designated month that fair housing gets, but it is certainly not limited just to the month of April. So while we are celebrating this month, something that should be on the top of all realtors' minds and homeowners' and buyers' and sellers' minds throughout the entire year. So Nate, first, before we get into the fair housing stuff, I would love to hear more about you, about what you do. How did you get started in real estate? Is this always something that you knew you wanted to do? And tell us a little bit about you and your journey. Oh, well, sure. Thanks, Allison. And uh, thanks, Ohio Realtors, for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'm looking forward to seeing you all soon as well. Yeah, and tell um, us about it. You're going to be here in April. Tell us about, later this month, actually, tell us about your visit to Ohio. Yeah. So in, in April, I'll be coming to Ohio, and I'll be speaking with several boards about fair housing and diversity, as well as smart growth, smart growth for the 21st century. So I'm really excited about that. Allison, as you mentioned, you know, I do travel all over the country talking with realtors about smart growth. How do we build our communities in a sustainable way, taking into account the built and the natural environment? And so in addition to that, you know, fair housing is another topic that I speak on quite a bit. And as you said, it's not something that we should just be focusing on in April. We should be focusing on it year round. And in many of our markets, we do. And hopefully the education that the educational opportunity that we'll have to have a conversation about fair housing and what that looks like will help us all get to the next level as it relates to creating more equitable communities. Because that's what we're really looking for. And it's interesting, you know, you asked about my journey. You know, I've been a realtor. I've been a realtor now for... 22, maybe 23 years now, somewhere in that neighborhood. I don't do math very well, but I know I was licensed in 1999. So that's, and I've been helping buyers and sellers achieve their goals here in St. Louis the entire time. And I love it. And over the last decade or so, I've uh, gotten on the road and started to train and instruct classes for my fellow realtors all over the country. And it's just been a rewarding experience. I love this industry. I love my fellow realtors. And it's just great to have the opportunity to meet so many people, to connect with so many people and provide value. And for me, getting into real estate, 
I really didn't know any realtors growing up. And actually, that may be something that, you know, that is, uh, you know, maybe part of the reason for that has to do with some of the challenges that exist in our communities as it relates to fair housing. Because one of the things that we've got to recognize is that the rate of home ownership is very, very different depending on which community you're from or where you live. And for example, an African-American, what I know is that the rate of home ownership in the African-American community is about 42% versus white families in America who enjoy home ownership at nearly 80%. So mm. as a result, if you are African-American, you have greater than 50% chance of being a first generation home buyer when you buy your first home because you haven't had that experience. So that I think is probably why I didn't have any encounters with realtors growing up because we didn't grow up in a home that we owned. So that's, I think that's what made me more passionate about achieving the American dream of home ownership and helping other people achieve that as well. And it's just been a really rewarding experience. And, uh, you know, once I got into the business, I, you know, I had initially got my license thinking that I wanted to, wanted to be a real estate investor. And once I got licensed, yeah, you know, investing is great, but I just really fell in love with helping people and seeing pe the look on people's eye, you know, in, in someone's eyes when I helped them achieve home ownership and I feel that I was an integral part of that process for them or helping them sell their home. You know, because with real estate, as we know, when someone buys a home or sells a home, that's typically going to be the largest financial transaction of their lives up to that point for most folks. So I take that very seriously and it's, a, it's an honor and blessing to be able to help so many people in St. Louis achieve that outcome. And, you know, you've kind of found yourself on the path of leadership as well. You know, we mentioned kind of some of the presidential roles you found yourself in in Missouri. Why was it important to you to get so involved in, in leadership and being involved at your state and, and local levels? It's interesting because when I first became a realtor, I was told, you don't have to get involved at board, you know, let them take care of that. You just worry about selling houses. And what I realized is that, once I did get involved, it was just a life-changing experience for me because like many realtors, I thought that the association was just some place that I got my MLS access and I paid a bunch of dues to. RPAC, for example, the Realtor Political Action Committee, I thought people were crazy when they told me that they were like, yeah, I'm a major investor. You know, I spend $1,000 a year or whatever. And I'm like, wow, I will never do that. I'm not giving the association <laughs> a dime more than I have to. And, you know, that, of course, changed once I learned what RPAC does, what the Realtor Political Action Committee does and how it impacts so much of what I do. And it's like, wow, this is this really is an investment in my business and in the industry that I love so much. And as a result, of course, you know, I'm a major investor, president circle. I'm a Hall of Famer, <laughs> RPAC Hall of Famer these days. So, yeah. So it sucks you in, it right? Does, you just, it does. You know, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and being able to meet so many people because I started with a small brokerage. So we kind of had a way of doing things. And it wasn't really until I went out and sort of stretched and went to some of the associations. And just like most people, somebody asked me, a friend asked me, hey, I thought you'd enjoy this meeting. Maybe you should come with me. So I went to the meeting and was like, oh, yeah, I'm in. And, um, and what I found out is that wow, I'm learning a whole lot here. I'm really taking the things that I'm learning in the association and implementing it into my business. And now I talk about a um, 
quintuple win, a quintuple win with association involvement. And that first win has to do with, um, am I doing good for the association or the entity that I'm involved with? Like, is my voice making a difference? Is my input valued? And so assuming that's the case, then that's checkbox number one. And then we move on to the second thing, which is professional development. I was learning how to run meetings at the time, learning how to interact with different personalities, just learning how to be a professional. I got my license when I was like 19 years old. So I was in and I had not really, I really didn't have any professional training on how to be a professional, if you will, right? So being associated with Realtors really helped with that. And that's that second win, the professional development. And then the third thing is actual business development. You know, I'm blessed to be able to get a lot of referrals from realtors, not only locally, but all over the country, and also be able to give referrals. You know, and it's great to be able to connect someone with a realtor that I know or that I've interacted with all over the country. So that's a tremendous feeling uh, as well to have those connections. And the client, our clients value that. They value those relationships, which is tremendous. So that's the third win. And then the fourth win is fun. I mean, I have an amazing time. You know, it's always fun talking with people who have similar challenges and similar opportunities that you have. So they get it. People get it and, and just kind of relax and, you know, tell stories and share ideas and, and just have a good time. Uh, so I love the fun aspect of it as well. That's the fourth win. And then the fifth win is really just the X factor because you just never know how you're going to be able to help someone achieve something that gets them closer to becoming the best version of themselves. Mm -hmm. And you never know how someone's going to be able to help you as well. And it's just such a, it's a sense of community in the sort of big C sense of the word community. And that's what it's about. And that's what I love about being a realtor. This episode of The Real View is brought to you by the Ohio Association of Community Colleges. Ohio's network of community colleges provides accessible training that accommodates the busy lifestyles of aspiring real estate professionals at half the price of a traditional university. With convenient locations in every part of the state, as well as online options, Ohio's community colleges are your smart choice for pre-licensing education. For more details or to start the journey to a real estate career, visit the education page at ohiorealtors.org and then click on the pre-licensed course locations. I mean, if you needed any more reason to get involved in leadership. I don't know how you could be more convinced based off of you just shared, Nate. I'm like, okay, sign me up. Where do I go? Sign me up. I'm ready to get started. <laughs> um, that was fantastic. And what what great um, insights and perspective you have um, on why you should get involved. So that was awesome. Thank you. What a way to kick off the show. Welcome to the show, right? <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah, that was incredible. So um, thanks for sharing that. But I do kind of want to dive in now. Now to our fair housing uh, stuff. Where do we even start? Historically speaking, I mean, this goes back so much further than just that Fair Housing Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1968. I mean, this goes back way before that, right? I mean, where do we start with fair housing and fair housing laws? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, Allison. And we have to go back quite a few years. We need to go back to 1865. And, you know, what was happening in our country around 1865, we know is that the Civil War was ending. So the Civil War was ending and the Emancipation Proclamation, and you've got all of these freed men and women in our nation that were formerly enslaved. And the question becomes, what are we going to do with them? 
What rights are they going to have? What opportunities? How are we going to integrate them into society in the United States? So that was where it all started. And, you know, when we get to 1866, you know, there was a special field order issued by one of um, by one of Abraham Lincoln's generals, General George Tecumseh Sherman. And, and what was said was that there was land that was set aside because General Sherman talked to one of the heads of the freedmen at the time, who was a, a gentleman by the name of Garrison Frazier. And when he was asked that question by uh, General Sherman, what is it that you want for your people? He was, he told him, he said, you know, we need land. He said, you, but if we have land, we're able to till the soil with our own hands. We're able to build homes. We're able to, you know, grow crops, do all of those things. And it made a lot of sense. So what happened was, uh, President Lincoln did set aside those lands for the resettlement of the recently freed uh, African Americans. And unfortunately, of course, you know, President Lincoln, as we know, had a bad night at the theater uh, not long after that. And that resulted in a different President Johnson coming into power, which sort of changed the trajectory of what that looks like because he viewed uh, emancipation completely differently. So then we had Congress passing the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was supposed to eliminate housing discrimination. And it said that all citizens of every race and color and without regard of any previous condition of involuntary servitude shall have the same rights as enjoyed by white citizens. And as we know, that didn't quite happen. And there's several civil, uh, several Supreme Court decisions that occurred that sort of started to chip away discrimination and segregation in our country. And so I say chip away, it didn't eliminate it. It did just start to chip away at it. And even once we get to 1968, when the Fair Housing Act was passed, it didn't eliminate illegal housing discrimination. It said that it did, but it also said that it did in 1866. And we know that that didn't happen. Wasn't that easy, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It wasn't that easy. Yeah, we've got to change hearts and minds of people to be able to create different outcomes within our communities because if we're just relying on the policies, then we may not get to where we want to go because people are, still have to be the ones that implement those policies. Yeah, because in 1968, things were, were still very much segregated. And one of the things that led to the Civil Rights Act was the... U.S. kind of realizing the the separation that was happening and that you had blacks and whites living in totally separate places and not even knowing anything about where each other are living or what environment each other are living in. And that kind of led to the Civil Rights Act of 1968, which is that that's the big one that is known um, in the housing world, which is this Fair Housing Act um, that was passed in 1968. So tell us kind of a little bit about that. Did I give an okay kind of of what led up to that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. And, you know, uh, Allison, we could talk for hours <laughs> and hours and weeks and, you know, people get entire degrees <laughs> and yeah. study their whole lives. I know, that's why I'm like, it's so hard to like talk about all of this in like 30 minutes. It's so yeah, hard. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, absolutely. But that's that's a great summary. And, yeah. you know, so once we get to, to 1968, what happened was Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a Fascinated, and that created an opportunity for President Lyndon Johnson to move this legislation forward uh, that had been stalled, and it was necessary. And he was able to get it, get it, get it across the finish line. And you know, he said, "Never let a never let a good tragedy go to waste." <laughs> and that's exactly what what occurred. And that's 
when the Civil Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act of 1968 was passed. And what we know is that that law eliminates discrimination based on race, color, religion, and national origin. And then that act was later amended to include sex and gender, and then even later, so that was in 1974. It was, you know, it was perfectly legal to discriminate against women in housing up until that time. I mean, that wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. It's, yeah. that's, it's crazy to think about, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you get to 1988, which really wasn't that long ago, you know? Yeah. And that's when we saw the Fair Housing Amendments Act, which made it illegal to discriminate based on uh, disability and familial status. So those are that's kind of what rounded out the Fair Housing Act that brought us to the seven federally protected classes that we see today. And if you don't mind, maybe just running through what those classes are, um, I want to make sure all of our listeners understand that. Sure, sure. So we've got race, color, religion, and national origin. Those were part of the Fair Housing Act of 1968. And then we have sex that was added in during the Housing and Community Development Act of 1974. And then we've got uh, disability, and familial status, which were added in the Fair Housing Amendments Act of 1988. So race, color, religion, national origin, sex, disability, and familial status are the seven protected classes. Yep, all protected underneath that Fair Housing Act. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that discrimination and issues with fair housing doesn't come up anymore, right? I mean, this is still just because this exists. Um, It hasn't necessarily been a cure for some of the discrimination that that happens in America's housing industry. So where does fair housing stand today? I've seen this this act pass, but have we come a long way? What work do we still have to do? Well, that's a great question. And that's a, that's a tough, an even, an even tougher answer. And yeah. if I had the answer to that question, how we solve that, then, you know, maybe we would have different outcomes in our communities. But I know that one of the things, I, I guess to answer the question bluntly, no, we haven't come a long way uh, since 1968. And one of the reasons that, or one of the ways that we can look at that and say that that is true is by looking at the statistics. Mm-hmm. So if we look the fair, you know, prior to 1968, the rate of home ownership within the African American community was about 44, maybe 45 percent, somewhere in that neighborhood. Today, the rate of home ownership in the African American community is about 42 or 43 percent. So the rate of home ownership is actually less than it was yeah. 50 years ago when the Fair Housing Act was passed. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Certainly discrimination and segregation is is a part of that because it still is alive and well. It really is. And, and through one of the ways, right, that it's still alive and well and that we see the segregation happening is with redlining, right? I mean, that was a huge kind of thing that, that hasn't gone away um, just because this n- new law exists, right? Yeah, that's right. And with redlining, so for, for those that aren't familiar with redlining, redlining is basically where banks would deny lending in certain communities based on the racial makeup. So, for example, and a lot of people don't know this, FHA, which was created in 1934, the policy there was to not lend in integrated communities. Not only integrated communities, but majority-minority communities as well. So, as a result, 
by the time, so you, between the time of the creation of the FHA in 1934 and the passage of the Fair Housing Act in 1968, you saw less than 2% and 2% of both FHA and VA loans issued to minorities in our country. So that obviously puts us as a nation behind terms of creating equal opportunities and equitable communities. So that's one of the challenges. So when you when we talk about the red line maps, these were actual maps that were created and have to take ownership of this because we drew the maps. Mm-hmm. We as realtors drew the maps that said that this area was deemed dangerous or this area was a minority community and FHA and the banks would take what we were saying as realtors and say, okay, we're not lending in those communities. So that was the sort of traditional redlining and what that looked like. Now, when we fast forward to today, how that looks, although we don't have specific maps that identify areas where, um, where banks aren't going to lend, what ends up happening where redlining exists today is that where lenders will have policies where they're not going to lend less than $50,000 in a particular community, or excuse me, uh, you know, uh, for a home. And you've got some communities that are on that bubble where they could, or maybe they're $70,000 neighborhoods or $60,000 neighborhoods. It doesn't take very long if you're going backwards for those properties to fall under that $50,000 threshold. And then as a result, you're not able to get financing in those neighborhoods. So the people that are able to buy those homes are investors, folks that are you know, renting them. And as we know, people who are renting in a community have, uh, have, have less of a stake of ownership in that community because they don't own the community. You know, they're just mm-hmm. merely renting. And nothing wrong with renters, of course, but when you have the majority of a community as renters, then it doesn't speak well for the sort of upward mobility of that particular community. And that's one of the challenges that we continue to see today. Also with redlining, what we see is with the appraisals. There's been some real challenges that have come to light over the last several years about how appraisers are valuing properties differently just based on who lives there. Not even, Mm -hmm. not talking about the neighborhood specifically, but if you know if an appraiser shows up, and, and this has been documented in many cases around the country, that uh, some appraisers are appraising properties less if a minority family lives there versus if a white family lives there, and that's just criminal. It really is. So those are mm-hmm. some of the things that we continue to deal with today as it relates to to redlining. And I think that's important to note that this is happening now. You know, we almost think that like, oh, this happened so long ago and, and that's, everything's been fair since, you know, 1968 and everyone's protected, you know, with the Fair Housing Act. But this is this, these types of things are still going on. And like you said, it contributes to the black home ownership rate being so much lower than the white. So what do we do? How can we climb out of this? How can we start to move forward and, and make things more equitable and more fair for all, knowing kind of some of the challenges and things that we're still dealing with today? Well, what we have to do is we have to educate ourselves because it is up to us. We as realtors are the gatekeepers to home ownership, and it's up to us to work in a way that's going to be inclusive for everyone that could want to live in the communities that we live and work in. And historically, we've just not been there. So there needs to be a fundamental shift in how we as realtors operate. Because another challenge that we've got is with steering. Uh, Steering 
is, you know, basically telling somebody that ah, you don't want to live in this neighborhood because of this or, you know, because there's these folks live there or those folks live there or because these folks live there, you probably want to live in that neighborhood. That kind of thing, right? Where you're sort of pushing people or guiding people into particular communities based on who they are and who lives in those communities. And one of the things that we saw recently over the last couple of years, which is shocking, and had um, there was a, a f- investigative story that was done by an organization called Newsday, and they did a three-year investigative story where they did had hidden cameras, they had testers, the whole shebang, and what they found is that if you are Asian, you have a 19% chance of being shown homes in different neighborhoods than your white counterparts. If you're Hispanic, you have a 39% chance of being shown homes in different neighborhoods. And if you're African-American, you've got a 49% chance of being shown homes in different neighborhoods than your white counterparts. And, you know, what's shocking about that is that I'm not shocked by it. And and that's what's so sad about all of this. Sad, is that- yeah. I was just going to say, isn't that sad that that's not even, you know, surprising? Like, this is, you know, it, we're so used to it now and we should not be used to it. Yeah, yeah. And although this was done in New York, uh, in Long Island, my sad belief is that this could happen in this testing could occur in our associations all over the country. In many of them, you're going to have very similar, if not worse, results. So it comes down to us and what we're doing. And again, this is something that was was just you know two years ago as far as the results. And another thing that I think is important to recognize there is that the folks that were the testers in that during that stu- that study, they in many cases did not know that they were being discriminated against. Because if we go back to the 50s and 60s, you would see signs. We want white tenants in our, you know, our community, no, no, no Negroes, no Jews, no Irish, you know, those types of things we would see where you had that overt discrimination and segregation. But today it still exists, but it's much more covert. And mm-hmm. people are kind of, kind of winking a smile and discrimination Um, And it makes it so much more difficult to prove because you really have to have matched pairs, you know, in terms of testing to be able to prove that this exists in many cases. And most people don't aren't going to do that because most people don't feel that they were discriminated against. I'll take myself, for example. If I went to Long Island and contacted a realtor and said, hey, I'm going to move here with my family. Uh, This is my price range. This is what I'm looking for. I'm going to trust the realtor is going to show me everything that's available in the range that I've identified. And because mm-hmm. I don't know that market, I'm not going to know what I don't know. I don't know that I'm not being shown homes in these neighborhoods or these areas. And that's, and that's what's heartbreaking about all of this. And it becomes very difficult for us to sort of move the needle in that way. But through education, we're able to do that because as you stated, Allison, uh, a lot of people believe that when the Fair Housing Act was passed or shortly thereafter, that ended it all. That solved it. And what we know is that it didn't solve it. It didn't come close to solving it. We still have a lot of work to do. Because what I'll say is even if it did solve it, okay, so let's say that the Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968 and that solved illegal housing discrimination. All right, so at that moment, everybody woke up the next day and treated everybody equally. If that were the case, of course, we know that wasn't the case, but even if that were the case, the challenge is going to be, so what about 
the home ownership opportunities that some folks had that other folks didn't have over the previous 50 years. Because when we look at the creation of the FHA, what we know is that it made housing accessible for many, but not all, and it really created the middle class. So if we look at, you know, one of the examples that I use in, in class is Levittown in New York. So in Levittown, in the, the mid-1940s, uh, there was y y the ability to invest in home ownership at a very, very affordable rate, about twice the median income average of our nation. And you could not move into Levittown if you were African-American or another minority or Jewish or any of those things. You weren't able to occupy or purchase homes there. And you were able to buy homes in sort of adjacent neighborhoods. And by adjacent, the, home, the neighborhoods that were on the other side of the tracks, so to speak. And what we saw is that appreciation occurred uh, quite well in the Levittown in, in similar communities because this was a model for the sort of suburbs in our country. This was really the, the, the you know, uh, William Levitt was, is credited as, you know, the sort of father of the modern suburb. And, you know, all the way down to the restrictive covenants which barred minorities from living in these neighborhoods. So you're a minority, you're able to buy in a neighborhood across the tracks. Uh, it was about the same price, very affordable, twice the median income average. But when we look today, the homes in Levittown are selling for four and five hundred thousand dollars, where the homes in these other communities that, where there was a lack of investment in infrastructure, you didn't have the nice parks, you know, schools, things like that, they didn't appreciate in value. So today, in today's dollars, the same home that cost about a hundred thousand dollars in today's dollars is still worth about a hundred thousand dollars in today's dollars. So we saw little to zero wealth accumulation that occurred in minority communities over that period of time. Uh, and you can even fast forward that much further into the 70s and 80s based on where certain people were forced to go. And, you know, and I say forced in quotes, meaning they didn't, just didn't have opportunities. They weren't shown homes in some, of these, in some of the other areas where they could have afforded them. They just weren't given those opportunities. So getting back to what I was saying, even if you had a situation where everybody woke up and treated everybody equally, it's like monopoly. If everybody is allowed to go around the board three or four times before you're ever, to, ever able to leave go, what's gonna happen? You're going to have obstacles. You're going to, there's not gonna be property available for you anymore. You know, you're not gonna, you know, the house properties that you land on are gonna cost more because homes have been built, hotels even. Um, you know, even Baltic and Mediterranean is probably not even available anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's kind of monopoly reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's that. So that's I think you know that's that's the sort of educational piece. Us as realtors really needing to understand the realities of those things that that I just spoke about, and then we can sort of from there work to create better outcomes in our communities by, um, you know, countering stereotypes, you know, talking less and listening more, being intentional. And, and I think that being intentional is critically important because what I know is that many of our associations all around our country didn't open their doors to minorities until, uh, you know, maybe the 70s. And even if you, you know, unlock the door and say, okay, you know, we're no longer discriminating. If you have been discriminated against for the last 20 or 30 years, 
Are, do you, are you going to rush to be a part of the association that's done that, that's, that's treated you unfairly? Probably not. So, you know, so you open the door, that doesn't mean that everybody's coming in. Uh, you've got to do some things to be intentional. And, you know, I, I say if you're not intentionally inclusive, you're unintentionally exclusive. And that's how many of our associations, how many of our companies operate because we say, well, everybody's welcome here, but then you turn around and you see that everybody looks like you. And that's because you're not doing things to really create that welcoming environment and creating a sense of intentionality in terms of creating a diverse climate within your organization. Yeah. And I mean, I know one of the things back on the education piece, which which should be the first step before we can get into more actionable items, kind of like you were just mentioning, Nate, is there's a great training that NAR has uh, called Fair Haven. I think mm-hmm. that's what it's yes. called. Yes. Yes. A really great training. You can go online at NAR's website, take that. It walks you through. It's just a good starting point. It's a free tool, a free resource that's out there for you to take advantage of that will kind of help you get going on, on this knowledge piece that, that Nate was just talking about and the importance of education and, and just learning. You know, we all have work to do. We all can do better when it comes to this stuff. Clearly, the country can do better. Us as realtors can do better. There's always ways we can be looking to improve, you know, our business and fair housing, even if we think we're experts in it. You know, there's always a way we can take that next step further and make this a part of our everyday business if it's not already. Nate, any last pieces of advice or things you want to make sure to mention before we wrap it up here today? Um, Well, Allison, you mentioned Fairhaven. I think that that's a great way for realtors to kind of get involved and sort of get an understanding of what it looks like to be in someone else's shoes in terms of being a real estate professional as well as being a consumer of real estate, uh, potentially from a diverse background, because it it's a pretty cool tool. And you know it doesn't take you that long. You can walk through it in 60, 90 minutes, something like that. And you can do it piece at a time, but it's kind of a gamification type of thing where you're kind of walking through these scenarios. And I think that's a great resource uh, for, you to, for, you to, for you to get in there. But other than that, education, as I talked about, I, I think that you know, the, the, the importance of, of being intentional and, and really listening, talking less and listening more, and that really helps us gain perspectives of those that may be different than us and only when we understand those perspectives are we able to are we able to sort of create change within our community to kind of create some different outcomes than maybe what we've seen in the past and also come to our fair housing training with nate and come to the fair housing training absolutely yes Yes. yeah Here coming up uh, later this month in April, we're so excited to have Nate in person. Um, I know I'm going to try to get there because you're incredible, Nate, and I'm excited to, to learn more and have you here um, in person. And we'll make sure to get all these details to you guys listening if you haven't already um, heard. We'll make sure you know exactly when and where this is happening later that month. You don't want to miss it. I mean, come hang out with Nate for a day or two. It's what, what, what more can you ask for for your work day, right? So, yes. Nate, thank you again so much for joining me today. Thank you for for sharing this information and knowledge. Thanks for coming and joining us here in a couple weeks, and we can't wait to see you in Ohio. Fantastic. Thanks, Allison and Ohio Realtors. I am looking forward to seeing you all soon. Thanks. And thank all you listeners for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys next week, and we'll see you in person for our fair housing trainings and our smart growth trainings in just a couple weeks. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Real View. That wraps up today's episode. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at ohiorealtors.org slash The Real View. 
and on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Have questions, comments, or suggestions? We want to hear from you. Email us at podcast at ohiorealtors.org. We'll see you next time.